Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Rabbi Shapiro and I realized that last last book with Brayshit, we said that we were going to choose at the end of every book, we were going to choose the last few verses and Rabbi Shapiro got to the last few verses and realized, well, there's nothing really on these verses, so we're we not- have we have failed you, friends. We have failed you. So we did it for one book, and that was great. And we're not going to do it for this book. We're going to choose other verses for this book that I will let Rabbi Shapiro introduce. But interestingly enough, one little trivia piece that I will add to this that I think I mentioned elsewhere. So depending on how many of my things you attend, you might have heard me say this already. Um, This is, we're reading two Parshio, but the general story in this week's Parsha, combined Parsha, is exactly the same as two and three Parshiot ago. Um, Some of the language is quite quite literally copy and pasted from uh, Parshat Truma, and some of it is just the general um, uh, idea or makeup of the Mishkan coming back to us again now in these parshiot. So it's interesting that we had like a little a little blip of narrative in between, but then when we come back into building the Mishkan, it's basically exactly the same as when we saw it before, and then it's going to move forward from here. So if you're hearing things, or when Rabbi Shabbat is going through the verses, you're seeing you're seeing verses that you think look similar to other weeks uh, that we just had. You are not alone. I also was confused um, and worried that I was reading the wrong parsha, but in fact, they're just exactly the same. And we're getting back to Elon's question a few weeks ago. Why doesn't it just say and they made this night nice? Um, you know, we we get the instructions yet again for this very intricate mishkan. So. With that, I will turn over to Rabbi Shapiro. I will say that if you want different to came tomorrow morning, the Bar Mitzvah boy, Lucas Shane, has a fantastic drosh on some of the closing verses to the book. So I will say, if you want to hear them, he wrote a great drosh and the rabbi who helped him with it did a fabulous job. Okay, here we go. All right. Svarya, behave yourself, please. Okay. We're going to pick up about eh, a chapter or so into the first of the two Parshiot that are one Parsha that we're doing this week. Um, So we're we're not going to give you um, too many of the, I'm sure, uh, very exciting to you details of each and every intricate part of uh, the tabernacle itself, although scattering blood around is fun, as others, other rabbis Shapiro and Shots have taught us from about two weeks ago. We're not going to be talking about that either. Um, we're going to actually pick up on a little nugget of narrative that contains Rabbi Shots. Were you were you aware of like the embedded halacha in one of our verses? Were you aware of that? I don't know exactly what you're referring to. Great. So that, I'm going to take that as a no. Um, an embedded bit of narrative with interesting halakhic ramifications somewhere along the way. But I just mostly want to talk to you guys about Hasidut. It's Rabbi Shatz's job to talk to you about halakha, but maybe I will 
Dane. I want you to get to the first verse because I have a funny story to tell about it. So can you start? I can. And I will. Okay. So Betzalel and Ohaliav um, are in charge, along with all the other skilled people, of, of, of making this thing, of making this tabernacle. Moshe calls them. He says, uh, you know, th- there are interesting phrases. There, there, there's these ideas of chachamlev, right, which gets translated as endowed with, oh, mm, okay, did I... Was this, that it, Rabbi Schatz? It's no, like no, it's no. a okay. playhouse. You, no. you like did the, it's like the word of the day. I'm going to, I want to share just a very brief, very funny story. You literally made me talk for three <laughs> seconds so you could interrupt me. Okay. <laughs> I do realize that I just did that. Anyway, it says, Chacham Lev, but then it says, Chochma Utvuna Bahema, I couldn't read it. La Da'at. Okay, so Chokma Bina and Da'at come up here. You might know that Chokma Bina and Da'at are the three words whose first letters make up the very famous Jewish community of Chabad. I did not know that um, approximately two and a half years ago. Had no idea, just that Chabad was a thing. Didn't know that it came from that. Knew these three words, didn't know they came together to be Chabad. I wrote my cover letter to apply to Temple Betham to be the assistant rabbi. And I thought you were going to say for a second that you wrote your cover letter to apply to work for Chabad, which would be fantastic and on some level would check out as well. No. And I, as part of my cover letter, I wrote that I hope to bring Chokhmah, Bina, and Da'at to Temple Betham. And I explained what those three things are, meaning wisdom, knowledge, and uh, spiritual <laughs> spiritual understanding. I sent in my cover letter. Obviously, people liked it. Here I am. And Rabbi Klinkfeld read my cover letter <laughs> and emailed me and said, I'm really not supposed to be commenting on anything you're sending in during this process. I just want to let you know that I look forward to if you are the assistant rabbi at Temple Betham, seeing how you bring Chabad to our community. And then he had to explain to me what how he got there based on my cover letter. And so if any of you want me to be bringing a little bit of more Chabad to Temple Betham, it came from this verse. And I will now let Rabbi Shapiro continue. I am delighted by that story on a number were. of levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, w- it was worth the interruption five seconds what I was doing. That's fantastic. Um, do you know Do you know where they get those three from, Rabbi Schatz? Do you know why? Uh, what do you, where, where who gets them? Why, why they use those three words. Yeah. It's because it's the upper three spherot. Ah, very good. Bringing us back to the Hasidu. Very good. Very good. That, but that's why, I mean, it, yeah, it's, yeah, the, that's it. it's the verse, but it's also because those become yeah. the upper three spherot. Yeah. <clears throat> I was a mystic even when I applied. That's that's what I always say about you. You are a closet mystic and a closet Chabadnik. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the ranch, <laughs> uh, we're making a Mishkan. Okay. Uh, Moshe calls these artisans um, who are Chacham Lev to come... Um, and, and you can you can see that phrase repeated, right? It, it, there, there was a version of this class where we were going to drill down on that. We're not, but it's a fascinating phrase. Being wise of heart, um, and that's what qualifies you to work on the Mishkan. 
Moshe calls these artisans to to come and work and and execute the task, right? Like when we think about, as Rabbi Schatz was saying, how these these chunks of parshiot mirror each other. One way of thinking about it is that one lays out the blueprint and one is the implementation, right? And so he's he's saying, all right, it's time to time to get this done. They take the gifts that the Israelites had brought to to make this happen. Um, this word of malacha pops up in some interesting ways, as we will see. That's the the teaser for the halachic piece that I was talking about. Um, yes, Rabbi Shatz? No, I said now I know what you're talking about. I didn't know what you were referring to before, but now I know what you're oh, At least I'm consistent. Okay, so to do this malacha, for, to do this holy work, um, and here's where we're getting into, and they, they keep bringing these offerings, right? They keep bringing these offerings forward, Baboker, baboker, right? Like morning after morning, which is a fascinating phrase. Um, and all of these wise people, um, right? They're, they're, I guess the verse doesn't make sense in isolation, right? They continue to bring forward these offerings morning after offering. All of these artisans, everyone's coming forward, like this real sense of, of overflow in terms of what's being brought and how much of it is being brought. And so here's where we're going to land on our verses for the day. We're going to do chapter 36, verses 5, 6, and 7. Vayomru el Moshe lemor, they said to Moses saying, I'm sure, um, these artisans, they say, merabim ha'am lahavi, the people are bringing, <laughs> they're bringing too much. Midei havoda limlacha asher tziva adonai la they're they're bringing too much in terms of what's actually needed um, for what God has commanded uh, commanded to be done. Vaitzav Moshe and Moses therefore like co- proclaimed, but really commanded. Lemor, and he had he he shared this his voice throughout the camp, saying, "Ish veisha al yasu od malacha litrumata kodesh." Each man and woman shouldn't do any more work for, in terms of bringing forth these gifts into the sanctuary. Um, and the people stopped, stopped bringing forward what they were bringing forward. Um, I will, I will note, um, as well, like unusual in the Torah, specifying ish and isha, right? You, that, that's not ordinarily a construct that, that you would see. Um, so making note, first of all, that it's really every person, but also therefore you can presumably read back that men and women are involved in the bringing forth of these gifts, which is thing to note. Um, and then verse seven, v'amlacha hayta dayam lechol hamlacha sot ota vehoter, right? So this is, it, the, the verse is interestingly constructed here. The work that they were doing was enough for all the work, right? The work was enough for all that the work that they were doing on it, and it was too much, right? It, it, the, Rabbi Shatz, do you have a better way of translating this? Like the way it's, the efforts had been more than enough for all the tasks that had to be done. So the more than enough, but it's like, it was enough. And it was also too much. I'm intentionally translating it a little weird because that's sort of teasing the, chaz, the chasidut piece that I'm excited to bring. But it's an oddly constructed um, sentence. And I, think, and I will I, just point out in terms of the structure of the sentence, the way that the trope was then put into the sentence does not make it any easier to understand. We often right. 
or trope as a way of seeing um, like a comma or even like a right. semicolon. There are no stops in the way in which this verse is read with trope. Um, well, there is a st- the Etnach Ta is here, but it's at the very end. Right. right? So you right? Like that, the, that, oh, thank you. Yes. I'm, I'm very good at chanting with Niku. Thank you very much. All sorts of skills. Um, but point being that the word saying it's extra feels extra, yeah. right? Like, 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 why is that word? You said there was, right? They had enough stuff, but also there was extra stuff. What's going on here? All right. I'm going to pause there. Rabbi Schatz, over to you. Let's get some kushio going. Wait, can you just make six, seven, and eight bigger, please? Thank you. Oh. You mean five, six, seven? Yes, that is what I mean. Well, it's... mm, Well, mm. okay, it's fine. It's fine. There we go. I did it. Wow, good job. Um, Okay, Renee, you have your hand up. Questions, not comments from anybody. Uh, I mean, you can make comments, I guess, but questions more. Kushio, dark questions. I just wanted to know what is more than is needed. Like, what was there? Was there a specific thing that they were, that they requirements that they had needed to have so much of this and so much of that? Great. And they had beyond that, or what? Rabbis ask that question also. What does it mean more than? Like, what are what are we talking and, about? And especially like among the Jews, more than. I mean, there's never enough among us Jews. They never bring enough. Yeah, so I think there's there's question as to was it more than for the person individually or is it more than for the tabernacle or was it more than for the artisans who are working on the tabernacle? Right, what is, it's a great question just all on its own. What is more than? What does it mean that there was more than enough? Jay. How did, I ask this question a lot. I know, I know we've heard this one many times, but how did the Israelites get all this equipment and stuff in order to make the, in order to make the Mishan. Yeah, great. I um, <laughs> I was in a mid. I was in a um, yeah, midrash class yesterday. Uh, a friend of mine teaches, and w- someone asked the same question, and he referred us back to the Prince of Egypt. That I guess in the Prince of Egypt, which as we all know is Torah Misenai, um, you saw when they left Egypt, they had. Big, I don't remember this. I'm just quoting him. There are big pieces of wood on their shoulders carrying them uh, through the Exodus. So, though I don't know if that is actual fact or accurate, yes, there can be miracles when you believe um, that that um, Rabbi Shapiro has been singing in every meeting I've been in with him recently. So maybe he'll sing for us a little bit later. But I already sang. I chanted Torah. I do think that many of the items that they end up having through throughout this experience were either taken from the Egyptians in that looting moment that they had early on, or through the through just the accumulation of stuff that they had as they were going through. So that's my guess. I don't but but to to compound Jay's question, I'm not going to answer this later. I'll just compound the question. Okay. Um, Rabbi Schatz might have an answer. She usually does. Um, they just built this golden calf with all their stuff, right? How how do they not only have enough, but more than enough to make this new thing when they were just tossing all their gold in this fire yeah. to make this uh, naughty, naughty golden calf that they made? Any other questions? <laughs> yeah, Ilan. So I, I can't think of, it, it seems to me that 
uh, at least up until this point, I can't think of an example where God says, no, 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 really, that's enough. So why now is all of a sudden, because with all due respect to God, it seems like, you know, come on, guys, keep bringing it on. We love it. Animals, gold, silver, it's all beautiful. And all of a sudden he he becomes, uh, you know, um, like, yeah, that's enough. Thanks. Thanks anyway, you know? Yeah. Great question that I definitely don't have an answer to. And, and interesting that, um, that the way I read it the same way you are reading it, it's, it's not, it's not necessarily clear that God is the one who's saying that there's enough, right? It could be that Betzalel has too much or Moses is saying there's too much. Um, but, but it is interesting that the people stop bringing and that seems to be satisfactory to God. Therefore, we might read it as as God thinking there's there's an abundant amount of material. Yeah. Other questions, thoughts? Okay. Um, Ravish Shapiro, why don't you... Oh, Ravish Shapiro says, I have some pieces on that. So why don't you start? I, I was thinking folks were going to keep talking for a little while. I wasn't going to say that as a way right to jump in. But I can. Um Arishet, are you going to get into the Malacha piece in verse six? Do you have anything on that? Because it was interesting, but it's not my, it wasn't going to be my focus. Yeah, I did not, I did not focus on it either. Okay. Um, cool. Um, the, I'll offer one short piece and then I'll, I'll get into the longer um, chunk that I found. The one short piece was I was flipping through, you guys know, I, I love Aviva Zornberg's stuff. She drew an interesting connection, Elon, to your your question about wh- why now? Why now is that boundary being drawn in terms of um, saying, no, 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 don't give too much? She does draw kind of like a narrative connection between what happened with the golden calf and what's happening now, that it seems like there there is this... Um, this impulse within the people, right? Just like the golden calf to like give and give and give towards something physical and concern that even though this has tilted away from the idolatrous impulse into more of the sort of focused in impulse to, that this is the way um, that's being specified to serve God, that an unrestrained impulse is is also not a good thing, right? That, that there's something about it being a um, authentic, and genuine, but still boundaried way of, of contributing, right? That it should be meaningful, right? That it should be substantial, that it should be a, a free will offering, but that there should still be like some kind of boundary um, in terms of what's happening so that, so that it's not this, this total, basically over, <laughs> overshare in a different way, right? But that, that it shouldn't be like too much of, right? There is, there is too much of a good thing. They, they, it shouldn't be too much, which I thought was just an interesting narrative connection mm-hmm. um, in terms of, of the golden calf piece. Um, there's, a, there's a longer piece. I can, I, can take a, I can take a breath there while I pull up the longer piece if folks have other um, questions or anybody wants to respond to that. Um, oops, and I just lost the piece I was going to share. Okay, um, I can share the longer piece. This is a um, chunk. It's it's off of a, a source sheet put together 
um, Rabbi Getzel Davis, who I who I met in passing once. I believe I'm not quite sure where he is now. He was the rabbi at Harvard Hillel for a little while, I believe. Um, so a contemporary of ours. So thank you for pulling this source sheet together. And he plonks a nice piece of uh, Kedushat Levi, Rabbi Rabbi Levi Yitzchak. Rabbi Shatz, is this the piece that you shared with Rabbi Clickfeld, or did you share a different piece? Um. Okay. So you let me know. Uh, so Rebbe Levi Yitzchak, one of the... I think so, yes. Okay, great. Um, translated by Rabbi Art Green. So picking up on this, this third verse of ours, um, and, and this idea that we're already pulling apart a little bit. How can it be that it was sufficient um, and also that, that it was too much, right? If we're saying that they had enough... And also too much, what, what's going on there? So he articulates that, right? These two words seem to contradict each other. If it was sufficient, why are you saying there's also more? What's this hutar? Um, so here we go back to Rabbi Shatz and her chabad So Rev Levi Yitzchak pulls a piece, a quick quote from the Gemara, Bitzalel, the lead on this project, he knew all the stuff, right? He knew the different permutations of letters through which heaven and earth were created, right? That this idea that, that the world is created through letters, that's a common idea in rabbinic theology. So he knew a lot. God placed chokhmah, bina, and da'at into their hearts, wisdom, awareness, and understanding, however you want to translate those. God grants this power to the righteous of each generation, as righteous people engage in Torah and offer new interpretations, this is a beautiful idea, they're creating a new heaven and a new earth. Like that's, first of all, let's just pause there for a second. That's a really cool idea, right? That in each and every generation, um, as the righteous, and even some of us who are not so righteous, uh, engage in Torah and come up with new interpretations of the Torah, we're actually creating worlds, which is a, a really, really beautiful idea. And there is a parallel when we when we think about this between the creation of the Mishkan, right, that there's like a, a tabernacle here on earth and also like a corresponding tabernacle um, up, as it were, in heaven. Um, so in, const- uh, in constructing the tabernacle, The builders directed their Holy Spirit to be in the precise accord with divine wisdom, performing acts of union, permutation of letters with each vessel they formed and each deed they undertook. So as we know, like a real expansion of this idea that has surfaced sometimes in pushing it to another level, right? We talk in this class often, uh, so much so that it was parodied on Purim, right? That each and every verse, word, letter is in there for a reason, so much so that like the the architects of the tabernacle, they're making this stuff. There's such care with the like they're pulling from the letters. The letters are what create and they're pulling out each vessel, each thing they do. It's it's undergirded with this divine wisdom. And they were such tzaddikim. They were so wise that if they wanted, they could have kept going forever. There wasn't necessarily going to be an end to this project. If they wanted to keep working, um, this idea of expansive mind, which is an idea that you'll see in Jewish mysticism, mochin de gadlut, right? There's like the everyday mind, mochin de katnut, and the, and the expansive mind, the divine mind of mochin de gadlut, like, like literally 
little little brain and and big brain, which doesn't quite sound as good as expansive mind, but there you go. Um, they could have gone on endlessly for the spirit of God was upon, right? They, they could have just keep kept going and going and going. But they had to put limits on their work. They had to put limits on it. Thus, they left room for the righteous still to come along in the future to teach about the con- construction. There's, there's some typos in here. To teach about the construction of the tabernacle, each of them using their minds to uncover secrets of wisdom in every word and in each vessel. And thus, they would bring about ever new acts of sublime union. So I'm going I'm to pause there for, for a, a chunk of time. Um, no, there's only a couple more sentences. No, no, wait, there's more. All right, I'm going to pause there for a second. Um, this idea that um, they could have kept going, but they put limits on what they're doing to make room for others. So this idea that there, there's enough and there's more, that this dance between um, they could have kept going, but they chose not to, and that that's actually um, an act of generosity and offers room for more people to be able to create instead of just basically monopolizing it for themselves. Um, and here's a, here's a parallel with God, right? In creating the world, God left over some of that creative energy, pr- putting a limit on creation in order to leave room for the righteous yet to come to be creative as well. So there's... This is turning into uh, Rabbi Shaviro rants about Jewish mysticism for longer than you really want him to. Um, but there's another embedded idea here, this idea of tzimtzum, which I'm sure many of you know, this idea that in order for the world to be created, God had to like withdraw. God had to restrict God's presence in order to leave enough room for the world to be created. It's not stated explicitly here, but it but it's it's only about 10% away, right? God God left room for there to be more creating to happen. And so too, the builders of the tabernacle did the same thing. So that's why the Torah says both enough and also more. Sufficient enough means that they placed limits on their work because all that they were to do, they were setting it up so that it would bring about unification. They carried this as far as their own minds would permit. More means that they left room for the righteous and wise in every generation who would hear and learn about the building of the tabernacle, just like we're talking about this morning for all of you righteous people who are listening to continue the building um, and add of their own mind as far as their own understanding can reach. I want to say like my best stab at a two minutes, uh, two minute, two sentence summary of that. And then I'll pause. The reason it says enough and more is because it was a choice made by the people who were building the tabernacle to create enough of it so that there would in turn be the possibility for for additional creation and learning to happen. I'll I'll like tilt towards like away from the purely kind of academic esoteric understanding of this into something a little more real world-y, which is that when we think about relationships, when we think about how we live our lives in relationship to spouses, kids, spirituality, right? Whatever it is, there has to be 
enough left that we're not taking up all the space ourselves and that it's actually healthy to find the dance between what is enough and what's too much and how by doing more, it actually leads to less. And by with uh, withholding some of ourselves, it creates the opportunity for more to emerge. Um, Karen will be nodding, even though I can't see her, right? This idea that a healthy relationship is neither complete independence nor codependency, but but interdependence. And I think that that idea is popping up here. I'm going to stop talking for a little while, but I really like this text and I thought it was quite groovy. Elon, please tell me you're going to do your best Rabbi Matt Shapiro impersonation right now. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so I, I agree that this is a... I like this piece, but I find there to be a conflict between um, the emphasis that this piece puts on creativity and the specificity of the instructions vis-a-vis um, -vis the tabernacle, right? So if, in fact, God had intended the artists and uh, other people involved with the building of the Mishkan to be creative, why the specificity? Doesn't that, in fact impede creativity as opposed to promote it. Great. Great. So, so to make sure I understand your question, the question on that being this piece is indicating how much creativity can really expand out through this divine inspiration, but how can you say it's creativity if it's happening within this very, very strict framework in terms of the instructions that are given at quite right, at substantial length over these prakim about the building of the tabernacle. Is that the question? Yes. Um, I have, I have a thought on it, but I'm, I'm happy to pull back. See what I did there uh, for a minute or two. And Joanne, I see you have your hand up and Renee. Yeah. So I also have somewhat of a thought and a response. I don't know if it goes far enough, but we had an episode where the people had like total freedom and creativity to do something and they did it in a very wrong way, namely the golden calf. So, and I think maybe one of the lessons coming out of the golden calf is that a leadership that is totally, you know, talking about inter interdependency, a leadership that is totally dependent on you know, Moses doing all the stuff or Moses and Aaron doing all the stuff and the people not having a role wasn't going to work. So there needed to be a way to have a to have the people have a role and also a way to somehow circumscribe that, that there's a framework for within which creativity is welcome in, in a way that is in line with the values of our people. Yeah, but my problem is I don't see that. I see that in this interpretation. I don't see that in the actual uh, words of the Torah itself. Joanna, do, do you want to respond to that? I, I don't know that I have all that much more to say. I mean, I think Elon has a, has a has a point there. You know, and this is, I mean, this is us. You know, trying to fill in the space later, just like as this commentary is saying to make room for. You know, we have this text. And now the later generations, you know, adding to it. Yeah, Renee, you can go ahead. I, I'm, I have lots of thoughts and I'm generating more, but I, I want to. 
Rabbi, Sh- Rabbi, Rabbi Schatz knows, like, I'm, I'm off and running. Rabbi Schatz is ready to sign off and say, see you next week. But, you know. I've enjoyed the conversation. I don't okay. know. Uh, uh, I right. okay. story at the beginning. That can be my contribution. It was a really good story. I'm not beating that story, no matter how, how wonky I get on this. Yes, Renee. I'm just questioning, you know, all fine and good with wanting to have the righteous participate in that stuff. But what about the people who giving the people who uh, an opportunity to learn from their mistakes as well. Cause I kind of felt like when I was reading that, that it's only like this elite little group that's allowed to partake in that and other people are not. Yeah. Maybe I'm I mean, off the wall. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it, it's, um, it's, it's a great question. I mean, it's, it's coming at it from a completely different angle, but it, it's, um, it's a really important question when it comes to, you know, as, as has been stated ad nauseum in our sessions together i i really enjoy exploring hasidic texts and there are certain really challenging pieces reading them in 21st century los angeles right issues of gender like issues of xenophobia like there there are some really problematic components and and one of those yeah is that depending on which teacher you're reading and i even though i talk about it a lot i am still at best um, an intermediate novice when it comes to this stuff. So I can't like list out for you who falls where in terms of which schools, but some Hasidic teachers more so than others have a very elitist bent to them, right? And we'll, and we'll say that um, it's, it, there are, there's a way of accessing many of these teachings um, for pretty much everyone, but in terms of who really holds authority, um, that, there, that there is an elite. Um, that holds sway in terms of who has access um, and authority to to sort of teach and preach when it comes to this stuff. I think it's possible to expand that out, right? And I certainly have, um, and I'm I'm not the only one, right? Rabbi Art Green has written extensively on this. He has a great article called A Neo-Hasidic Credo. Uh, if you want to check it out, I know Rabbi Schatz reads it nightly. Um, but if if you if you check that out, he talks about finding ways to sort of authentically but intentionally like pull those teachings forward into our current moment and wrestling with that idea of the more elitist versus the more democratic impulses within um, Hasidic thought is definitely something that he explores, play with, plays with, and works to expand. Um, I was going to move to Elon's point, but I see Joanne is going to rebut him successfully for me. I actually see this as one of the most democratic pieces that we have in Torah, because first of all, the fact that women are specifically mentioned. And I also read this passage as there were some people who were contributing their skills, but there were other people who were contributing stuff. And, and like the, because the verse, um, which verse is it? Verse, um, verse five, right? Just refers to the um, not to skilled artisans, not to talented people, but just um, which to me reads as all of the people. So I read this, I don't know if it's a correct reading, that everyone, lots of people were contributing stuff. Those who had stuff to contributed contributed stuff. And those who were skilled in various aspects contributed their skills. Um, so there was lots of room for different types of contributions. For, for sure. In, in the shot of the text, absolutely. Um, and in some of the interpretations of that verse, so too. I mean, I, 
it, it seems like Rabbi Schatz isn't necessarily going to pick this up too much. So there, there's more to be said about it, but um, it, it seems like when it comes to thinking about Shabbat observance, verse six is a really big deal. Like this idea of macha and pausing and the ideas of tabernacle and Shabbat are very much interwoven in rabbinic literature um, be, because of how it's situated. Um, and when it comes to like, why everyone pauses on Shabbat, that verse is given as the proof text, right? Men and women. Oh, what do you know? Women should get a break too. What a crazy idea in rabbinic Judaism. <laughs> um, but but that's the verse that's given. So absolutely that it seems to be a, like as democratic as verses get in the text of the Torah itself. I was responding to Renee's question in terms of like the, within the Hasidic text itself, when it says like the Tadiki, right? specifies righteous, righteous, righteous. Well, what about the not so righteous, right? What what about those of us, and it's most of us who are benoniim, right? Who are sort of like not saints, not total sinners, just kind of somewhere in the middle. And and where's the room for each of us to contribute in that way? Which I think is a fair question on that text, and a fair question on many Hasidic texts, and the challenge of wrestling with that. Um, Rabbi Schatz, I'm talking a lot. I'm going to respond to Elan's question, and then I'm happy to take an extended I mean, I, I'm, people are enjoying this conversation. I don't need to add anything. Great. I'm having a great time and hopefully other people are too. Um, Elon, to your point, I, I think it's, I, very, it's a very Elon question. Next, next year I'm going to dress up as, as I'm going to, I'm going to play more of the Elon role. Um, next one. Um, and, and it's and it's an important question, right? This idea of of why are we being told so specifically what to do? If we're talking about being creative, why isn't there more leeway, right? Why why does it need to be creative within such a specific framework? Why is it so dictatorial in terms of what has to happen? Um, I think it's a fair question, um, Bonnie. Are you going to answer? Are you going to answer that question? Because your hand right went up when I asked it that way. Oh, but you're muted. So I'm, you're giving the best answer ever to that question, and we're not hearing it. Oh, oh no. Yeah, oh. Okay, here I am. Here you are. Uh, Hello. So I do a lot of um, needlework on various things. And um, so it doesn't tell you how. It says the colors. The people who are working with textures um, have leeway as to how they're going to do it. And I think the same with whether it's the copper or how they're setting the stones um, in various places. So I think there is some place for um, their own interpretations of how to do it and some creativity allowed, even though the basic structure was really given to them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I think both specifically, and I think writ large, I, I can only speak for myself. I think it's most helpful for me to be creative within a specific framework, right? Like you'll hear writers talk about the challenge of the blank page, Right. Like if you, if you just open up a blank page and it's like, write the great American novel, it's like, well, I, I don't I don't know how to do that. I, I actually I have no idea how to write the great American novel to begin with. Um, but but I think the total unboundaried sense of like, just go create something, I think, is really challenging and overwhelming. Um, I think being told here are the parameters in which you're working um, and now you create something. For me, that's that's much more helpful. You know, I, Elon, I think you're also partly asking the question. It's talking about creativity, but it doesn't really seem like it's creativity. 
I do think that's creativity, right? I think it is creative within a framework, but just because there's, there's a framework, it doesn't mean it's not creative. I think that is how rabbinic Judaism works, right? That That's the project of rabbinic Judaism. Rabbi, Sh- Rabbi Schatz and I aren't coming on here and be like, today we wanted to talk about whatever topic the two of us were kibitzing about earlier, right? It's grounded in the Parsha and we work within that. And a lot of the time we find ways to say what we wanted to say anyway, but it's grounded within the text of the Parsha and the text of the rabbis, right? That That's how the project works is we meld our perspective with the text and the teachings and the practices of those who came before us. Um, and I think there's wisdom in that. And I think there's beauty in that. Um, the one and a half other things I'll say is that it kind of makes me think about, and some of you have probably heard me say this before, right? The, the over, hopeful overlap between religion and spirituality, right? You hear a lot today about people who are spiritual, but not religious. I think there are also plenty of people who are religious, not spiritual. For me, ideally it's, it's the Venn diagram, right? That there can be overlap there in terms of religion gives like the, the structure, and the framework and the guidelines and the rituals, the spirituality is the spirit. You also hear like Keva and Kavanan here, the, the spirit and the intentionality and the, and the connection. And that ideally you have a spiritually infused religion or a religiously framed spirituality. And that's not for everyone. And that's okay. Um, but that, that's what I aspire to. And that's what works well for me. And this idea of being anchored in ritual text guideline structure, so that the spirit and the creativity can can flower from there. Um, For me, that's, that's a dynamic that makes sense and that I find to be helpful. Um, I think that's true in relationships, right? Committed relationship is that as well, right? Within the framework of my committed relationship to my wife, kids, family, friends, right? That's where creativity can flower. I'm not just going around and having a good time having a relationship with everybody because that's impossible, right? I set relationships for myself and it's through that that there can be um, that growth and that expansion. I'll pause there. Elon has his hand up. So wouldn't it be more honest to say the following, which is what is written in the scripture is very defined and in fact, very confining. We, however, given our modern our modern sensibilities, are going to add creativity to it. But that's what we're adding because that's meaningful to us, and it, and it, and it, and it, and it makes uh, it makes it easier to achieve that Venn diagram of religion and spirituality that you're talking about. I, I, I don't feel that one has to read something into the text that's not there in order to make it valid. Yeah, I hear that. I guess I, my response to that would be that it, de- it depends how broad, how, I think it depends on your understanding of what creativity is, right? And whether creativity needs to start from a place of, of no boundaries and, and a blank canvas and a blank canvas only, or if there can still be creativity within here's the canvas you are using, here are the paints you are going to use, here are the paintbrushes that you have, make whatever you want. So we as modern conservative, so Orthodox Jews would obviously, their definition of what uh, what is allowed within creative bounds is very different than ours is, by definition, right? And right. so, so 
I would argue that our sense, our understanding and interpretation allows for more creativity than theirs does. And that's not a criticism. That's just perception, right? That what worked for them works for them. It doesn't work for us. Um, and I don't feel badly that the Taurus is one thing, but we're doing something else. That's that's fine. Like right. I don't and feel a need to. I don't feel a need to justify it within the confines of the Torah. Yes, you need some boundaries. I get it. Otherwise, what's the point? Right. But we're we're willing to be a lot more flexible with those boundaries than the Orthodox are, for example. Right. But but my like, and I I am saying this publicly, and I say this to anyone. I think that's what's been happening all along. Right. I think the Torah is itself a commentary on the Torah. I think the rest of the Tanakh is a commentary on the Torah. I think rabbinic Judaism is a comment. Right. I, I think that's what's been happening all along. And part of what I like about the Kedushat Levy piece is I think he's providing the Parsha based mystical theological explanation for inspirationally oriented way of thinking about how we've been doing that all along. Right. That's my drosh on him. But I think that's authentic. Right. I think that's um, for me that that's an articulation of the Jewish project writ large, regardless of denomination. Right. I, I think even within Orthodox, right. We keep talking about Karaites. Rabbi Shatz, maybe we should bring a Karaite to class one week. Can I we know. do that? They we bring a, we should, can we bring a Can we can we have bring a Karaite to work day? That would be very interesting. Um a Karaite is someone who says that they don't, that, that doesn't ascribe to rabbinic Judaism, that they say Torah only, right? Because we as Jews, we're, we, are, we, are, we are Jews through the normative lens of the rabbinic understanding of Judaism. That is how most, that is what most Judaism looks Karaite Jews, just for example, the, the biggest Karaite community is in Northern California. So I got to know them very well and they actually davened in our shul um, for the two years that I was there because their shul was under construction. Um, but for example, they will eat a cheeseburger because the um, what it says in the Torah is to not cook a kid in its mother's milk. It doesn't say that you can't, you can't put the two things together. So they're very literal from the Torah, but they don't ascribe to the oral traditions that come after the Torah that give us our laws. We don't, we don't paskin, we don't make our laws based on the Torah. We make them based on the Shulchan Aruch, which comes from the Talmud. There's my halacha piece. I added something. We made it. We made it. We made it. Right. So, so what I would say to that is, is I think we're all, but I think we're all doing that. And I think Karaites are too, right? I, I think it's impossible to take the Torah completely literally. Because what does that even mean? There are contradictions within the Torah itself. You, you can't just follow the Torah because you'd go in knots trying to figure out what it says to begin with. So I think that that's the project that, that we're all engaged with. And I think that's very much a creative process that's been a part of the project from the start. And I think having that grounding structure leads to more, not less creativity, actually, because, because there's that shared experience. And you can go in those different directions, but you're actually all part of the same project. Bonnie, you had your hand up, but then you retracted it. Ah. You sort of covered it, but I, I also have always felt since I started uh, learning more about uh, Judaism that it was always an ongoing process from whether or not they were, you know, living uh, at the time of Abraham and the, and, or were slaves or had this, uh, the temple and then didn't have the temple. And each time 
they they made it work, and here we are, thousands of years later, um, you know, working it out for ourselves, however it works for us. And I find that very appealing. Yeah, yeah. What one more super wonky alone peaceman idea of the day, which is that um, there's a, there's a modern author, contemporary author, his name is Ken Wilber, um, and he talks about like integrating like all the different pieces possible, the different wisdoms of the world. Um, and he's, he's, he's new agey, right? He's, he's a new agey guy. And so you'd think that he would have um, a good amount of disdain for traditional religion, but it's actually quite the opposite. I mean, I, I think he has mixed feelings about it, but he, he sees there's value on it. And he talks about how the, the classic religions of the world, like the great religions of the world, he talks about them as the great conveyor belts, which is a funny image, right? But this idea that within Judaism, for example, and like so to Christianity and Islam and Buddhism, right? But we're talking about Judaism in the moment, I think. Um, within the Jewish tradition, there are ideas from 3,000 years ago and 2,500 years ago, and 2,000, and 1,000, and 500, and one, like, there are ideas embedded within our tradition from all of these stages of time and thought, and that's actually not just, it's not a bug, it's a feature, because we can look back and see where we've been, and we can see how we've evolved, and how we've gotten from point A to point B to point C to where we are now, and and it's it's a bit of a tangent, but I bring that up because this sense that by building on that, we're actually accessing wisdom that we wouldn't have if we just started from scratch. That because we're weaving all these pieces together in this tapestry, there's something that can be said for, okay, we're learning from where we've been and we're grounded in that. And there is wisdom in that, that we wouldn't have if we were just starting over. And because we can draw from that, we're actually laying the groundwork for future people to be, to be able to create from there. All of that to say, if that doesn't speak to you as a construct, that's, to- <laughs> that's totally fine, right? Like if, if what is most inspiring is to say it's better to start over, it doesn't seem like it's authentically grounded in the text um, to say that this is really a creative thing. They're just following the blueprint. Totally fine. But for me personally, and I think what the, what the text that has now taken up pretty much all of our time together uh, is communicating is this idea that the enoughness and the more that are indicated in that verse are actually two sides of the same coin. That those who came before us have given us more that have given us more than enough, have given us enough for us to in turn be able to generate more. And I think that that's a really lovely way of thinking about Rabbi Schatz. I think you probably also prepared some stuff I did, but I'm always, it is always better to come prepared and learn from others than to have to share my own stuff. Um, no, I thought this was a very fascinating conversation. And uh, what do you, what do you, you were very quiet. What do you think? What do you think about all this? I do think that there are two sides of the same coin for sure. I definitely agree with that. Um, the Kedushat Levy piece that I read, which was not this one, I, it was hard for me to read on your screen quickly, but um, I saw the word God and I was like, yeah, probably same thing, but that was silly. Um, also a common concept in Hasidic texts. Yeah, just a co- and com- common guy for, for most. Um, but 
the the idea of God is Ein Sof is also a very interesting way of thinking about enoughness versus too much, right? That if God is without end, and whether you think that means that God just lasts forever or God's um, power and ability goes on forever, whatever, however you want to interpret Ein Sof, um, I, th I love the idea that sometimes, even though God is present for us, we might not feel like God is present enough. And there are other moments in which we feel like we are being suffocated by the experience of religion, spirituality, uh, godliness, uh, and that that could be too much. And, and I... I thought that was a, a fascinating way of interpreting those two pieces. I also saw, a, um, and now I'm not remembering who it was because I didn't actually add it to my own source sheet, but a commentator who mentioned that the the die part, which by the way, like think dienu, right, the enoughness, um, that the die actually is referring to the people, not to the work. And that the abundance is referring to the work. So that the people were, were had felt like they had given enough, but the work um, came out of them almost as an abundance. And I also think that's beautiful. Susan and I were actually talking about this earlier this week, that like, what kind of worker are you? That are you a person who can put more into the world if you have a lot going on, or are you the kind of person who needs a ton of space to put anything into the world? And so there's there's this this um, this push and pull of if there's too much, can you find space? And for others, if there's not enough, it feels overwhelming, like you were talking about with the blank page, and therefore you cannot create. Um, I probably as no surprise to everybody, and the kind of person that I need a lot to be going on for me to create more. Uh, whereas if there's nothing going on, I have a harder time filling filling that space. So um, those are none of those thoughts were connected, but those were all of my thoughts over the past 58 minutes. <laughs> and Rabbi Klingfeld is giving an entire sermon on this tomorrow. So if this was a topic that you are interested in, um, definitely, definitely come to Shul tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. And, and and if not, come anyway because he'll probably do a better job teaching it than I just did. So. I think his pieces are quite different than the ones that we chose, but but his idea of enoughness is quite is quite interesting. So um, I have not read it; I've just heard him interpret it. So anyway, I I think it's I also think it's a very interesting COVID piece, right? Not that everything we learn has to do with the pandemic that we're living in, but I was fascinated and almost overwhelmed. Um, by opening up social media this morning and everyone saying, a year ago, this was the last thing I was doing. A year ago, this was the last thing I was doing. For us, it wasn't actually a year ago today. So in a way, it's like, wow, should we have closed? Like, <laughs> where were we? Um, but uh, but it's, it's overwhelming to see that people are hitting these marks. And, and Rabbi Yosef Konevsky wrote a really beautiful piece to his community that basically said in this pandemic, with so much taken away and so much added on, we recognize that which is the most important to us. And so maybe it's that balance of finding when something is enough 
or when you have too much and so you have to give. I'm into that. But you can close because you taught. <laughs> you can close. That was a good close. The, the, the one other thing, because there's always one other thing. Um, I, I really, can you get, I'm a little distracted. We got a cat this week and my cat is snoring in the background. So it's a little, it, not only do I get distracted now by screaming children, I also now get distracted by, by snoring cats because why, why should we keep things simple? Um, I'll just, I'll just circle back to the text. Like I, I love this idea because even though there is something like elitist in that text. I, I still love the idea that like I'll, I'll overly democratize it. This idea that we really each have something to offer um, yeah. and that, that there's teaching that gets built on top of teaching that gets built on top of teaching. I mean, for me, that's like the, the ideal construct of rabbinic Judaism Um Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, Alav HaShalom, the one time I heard him teach, he talked about this idea of rabbinic Judaism as all of us like sitting around a table having a conversation together, which is kind of like same page, different playbook, this idea that, that we're all in conversation with each other. Um, and it's, it's just a beautiful idea. And I think it's um, what I enjoy about this class that we're all sort of sitting around a, a digital table together. Um, and, and hopefully that as we thank God a year later, start to move out of the situation we've all been, that we'll find ways to keep amplifying the really democratizing experience that we have all had. I mean, I've, I've talked in here about how I've been able to learn with my teacher in Jerusalem over the past year in a way that I never would have before, would, would have, would have before because um, because everything's on Zoom now, right? And I think there is something really beautiful about finding ways to expand the voices that we get to hear because everyone does have something to teach. Um, and hopefully we'll all keep, fi keep uh, finding ways to be able to learn from each other um, because that is that creativity is something that's endemic and core to all of us. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.